Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 1st, 2019, as the Chicago White Sox reach the halfway point of the 2019 season. After 81 games, they are 39 and 42, which is a very pleasant surprise as the White Sox core continues to build together and getting stronger with Lucas Giolito, Aloy Jimenez, and Yohan Mikata playing so well. But it's the White Sox, and every bit of good news comes with bad news as more injuries to their top prospects, which impacts Rick Hahn's ability to make any trades either before the July 31st deadline if you want him to buy and maybe even possibly hurting him this upcoming offseason. We'll discuss the good and the bad on this week's show as we recap the White Sox first half, which means we get to dish out our grades along with yours as we had over 450 submissions for White Sox first half grades. Plus, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox, but we start this week's show like whenever a big prospect is called up. This time... It's Dylan Cease, as he'll be making his first start on Wednesday afternoon, taking the first game of the doubleheader against the Detroit Tigers. What should we expect from Cease in his Major League debut? Well, joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. They finally did it. Dylan Cease will be on the 25-man roster on Wednesday. Why do you think they picked this time for the call-up when arguably he hasn't been pitching all that well in Charlotte? 
Well, I wrote about it on Sunday afternoon and I was trying to piece it together because the timing, it didn't quite catch me off guard just because the White Sox had so few options unless they wanted to go to Hector Santiago and, and you know he would require a 40-man roster spot. And I think there are some 40-man considerations they need to make. You know, they can't, I don't think they can be so uh, like incredibly careless or cavalier with 40-man roster spots right now. So Cease being the guy on there, it seemed like he would be the choice, but when it comes to like a permanent position, I could see him coming up as like the 26th man, but as a permanent position, it strikes me as like a little bit surprising. But when you consider just how tough it is to pitch at AAA right now, and, and between the Major League Baseball being used there and, and, and think homers are up like some absurd percentage, Charlotte is one of the toughest places to pitch in all of minor league baseball. And and then you factor in the rain that the Carolinas are getting, like I I I wonder if it just, you know, gets detrimental to his development, just being down there, you know, not uh, being rewarded for some of the pitches he's making, having so many of his starts cut short by rain. Yeah. Maybe that's the one reason when you look at it to think like, okay, no matter, even if he hasn't really had a, a great start in like five outings, you know, maybe it's still better to have him up in Chicago, get him up when the uh, schedule is weak. And, you know, assuming his schedule starts with the Tigers and the Royals, it's a pretty smooth introduction, at least on paper. And, you know, you get an all-star break and a lot of time on side sessions to work on mechanical things or work on finishing, you know, whether it's a slider or change-up or whatever he's working on with uh, Don Cooper. You know, he's got some time on the side to do that. You know, maybe that is ultimately the best time to do it, even if the numbers don't necessarily paint a picture of a guy who's ready to dominate on day one. Out of all the numbers, and there will be a lot of people that will point at his ERA, a number that jumps out at me after you mentioned Charlotte and how they're playing with the bouncy ball and the amount of home runs that have been hit in the International League this year. I think the last number I heard, there was a 50% increase in home runs. The Gwinnett Braves have already hit more home runs in 2019 than all the 2018 season. Is that Cease has only allowed four home runs this year, Jim. Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, that's the number that I am going to take away. It's very difficult for teams and sluggers to hit home runs against Dylan Cease, and I think that is a skill uh, that he will be able to take with him uh, and implement that with the White Sox uh, much better than Ivan Nova, right? With Nova still having struggles, especially at home, giving up home runs. But when it comes to Dylan Cease, what is the expectation level of his performance that We'll make sure White Sox fans don't have to worry about him. Well, I think five innings is basically my standard answer for this. And I think given Cease's uh, you know, struggles, I guess, to get five decent innings his last few times out at Charlotte, you know, it seems like a, a good starting point. You, know, you mentioned the homers or the lack thereof. His walks have jumped up his last, I think he's got 11 walks in his last 17 innings or something like that. Um, and, and that's something I noticed when looking at home and road splits with Charlotte hitters like Adam Engel and, and Zach Collins and, and guys who really had severe splits, Daniel Polka, another one. But they seem to draw more walks at Charlotte than they did elsewhere. And, and usually, you know, you do see some, you know, you can see some difference, but I think the walk and strikeout totals were pretty dramatic. And I do wonder if that's the result of nibbling, you know, maybe being an inhospitable place for pitchers and being so, uh, you know, I guess such a breeding ground for cheap homers. I do wonder if, you know, pitchers on both sides, you know, both home and away are uh, being a little bit more careful about staying away from the middle of the plate, you know, trying to nibble more and maybe that's leading to walks. Uh, I, I'm curious to see when Cease comes up, how aggressive he is inside the strike zone. If he's 
willing to uh, you know get punched in the jaw to see if he uh, you know bounces back or if he's going to be careful from the first pitch like he has been uh, these last few starts. But yeah, basically five innings, um, uh, a reasonable amount of strikes. I would say you know if he throws five innings, eighty-five pitches. 55 to 60 strikes. I think that's kind of what I'm looking for out of the gate. And uh, I would hope to see, you know, by the time September rolls around, you know, some progress towards six innings with more regularity, but I think it could be a bit of a slog. You know, we've talked about it before with Carlos Rodon. You know, I imagine something like Carlos Rodon's rookie season where he does get a lot of uh, ugly swings at times, but he also gets foul balls when he would have gotten swings and misses in Charlotte. And that extends at bats and, and makes innings a bit longer than he's used to. Well, in other big news, obviously that is definitely something we are all going to be looking forward to this week is that Wednesday afternoon game with Dylan Cease on the mound. But the all-star teams were announced and another shocker for the White Sox. We were expecting James McCann and Lucas Giolito to be going to the all-star game for their tremendous first halves. Both players, according to baseball reference, are already at three wins above replacement. And I look forward to your first half post Jim uh, on doubling the numbers and see where everyone's season is progressing right now. I mean, the fact that we're talking about that James McCann and Lucas Giolito are on pace to be six war players is just mind blowing, but I love it uh, at the same time. But Jose Abreu gets a nod as he'll be the backup first baseman for the American league. And I'm surprised that Abreu made it, but I guess the RBI total uh, was too high enough to be ignored and was worthwhile to be p- voted f- um, for by his peers. Are you surprised, Jim, that Jose Abreu got voted in? A little bit, but I think he, you know, he would be the kind of player who does get favored by other players. He's got a lot of name recognition. He has a lot of respect around the game, and he also has the good traditional power stats. You mentioned for a first baseman, uh, the the. Tied for league lead in RBIs, 19 homers, 20 doubles, you know, a lot of extra base pop. He's hitting 260 something. Uh, the on base percentage is in the low 300s. So, I mean, that's not good. And, and when you look at a player value type uh, uh, formula, whether it's like, you know, weighted on base percentage or weighted runs created or OPS plus or war or whatever you want to say, like he doesn't come up as that impressive because he doesn't have the on base percentage going for him and he doesn't have a uh, great defense at first and he doesn't add a lot of value, if any, base running. So, you know, he's going to get killed in those value stats. But I think when you look at players and you look at first baseman around the American League and Carlos Santana was a starter, he was deserving. But after him, you know, you have some guys who don't have the traditional name recognition or the traditional, I guess, first base power numbers. I mean, uh, Dan Vogelbach was... Uh, the other first baseman named to the roster, but you know, a guy like Matt Olson, who he missed some time earlier. I mean, he might be maybe the best first baseman in the American league aside from Santana when you add in the whole package. But I think when it comes to players choosing guys, I don't think they look at the whole package. I think they look at first baseman who has hit before who's hitting. Okay. The season go and Abreu would fit that bill. Did Luke did Luke Voigt of the Yankees make it? Uh, he's, Injured, I think. Right. He, he got hurt during the series in London. No. Yeah. So I think I, I he didn't make it initially. And I'm not sure if he's in the running now, but I think he's got, he's one of those guys who doesn't have the lack of track record or he has the lack of track record. Leo Bray, you kind of, he's got the name recognition and he's got the, uh, you know, this is his third all-star game. So he's been there before. So I think uh, he's got that edge, but yeah, Voight would be another guy. Uh, but, you know, it's a great honor for Jose Abreu. It's the third time that he is going, as Jim mentioned, and it'll be the first time for James McCann 
and Lucas Giolito. Be interesting to see if Giolito is going to be pitching in the All-Star game. His next probable start is the Saturday game against the Chicago Cubs, which is just three days away from the All-Star game. But that technically would be his bullpen day, so maybe he does get an inning of work during the All-Star game. It would be pretty awesome to to watch him. Uh, The other note is that the Home Run Derby gym is still looking for two more participants. Do you think Jose Abreu would be interested? Uh, I I don't know if that's his thing. Um, I was wondering if Eloy Jimenez might get involved somehow. I would love that. Uh, being, I being would that love Vlad that. Juniors in there. Yes, give me that. I think he would be my choice. I think he has the showmanship that uh, Abreu doesn't have, and it, it's very much a uh, 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 slap your chest. I'm the best <laughs> event, and I think uh, Jimenez would really uh, uh, make a lot of it. Oh, give it to me, Peter Alonso, Vlad Junior, Eloy. Uh, Acuna is also in it. Yeah. Pump that into my veins. I will watch that on Monday if Eloy gets selected. I'll watch anyways because, you know, they got some big boppers in there. But I think Jimenez would just be perfect for the home run derby. But we'll see. Again, they have two spots open. Maybe Major League Baseball will ask. I think they should go younger with the home run derby. It'd be a great opportunity to showcase some of the new faces in Major League Baseball. So those are the big news items. Again, Dylan C. starting on Wednesday and joining the Chicago White Sox and the uh, the All-Star game. But let's talk about what happened this weekend as the Chicago White Sox are 39-42 and 42, thanks to a series win against the Minnesota Twins in the six games these two teams have played. It's either been really close games that the White Sox have won or a twin seven-run win. <laughs> There's been no in-between. And uh, one thing that stuck out to me was the White Sox got to Jose Barreos, which is a positive sign again. Uh, But Ross Detweiler held his own over five innings, just allowed two runs. And I wonder, Jim, the question that I have watching that start is, do you think he can survive longer than Adresimir Despagne and Irving Santana? He does have the natural advantage of being a left-handed pitcher, so does give him some different looks and uh he you know when it comes to lefties killing righties you know he doesn't face those extreme platoon cases so there's that also he had good command of his curveball he's able to throw that in any count basically so i think if he's able to maintain that control from start to start it gives him more of a chance than despagne who couldn't really get anything over uh when it came to you know getting counts in his favor and i, I think that's going to be something key for detweiler but right now i think you know it's gonna be. It could be the case where it's you know you bring up a guy he has a decent first start gets hammered second to third times out, swap him out for Hector Santiago. Yeah, it's it's kind of what I'm bracing for just based on the way the season's gone with Irvin Santana and Manny Benuelos and uh, um, and Despagne and now you have Detweiler. It's just I, I think uh, you know there tends to be a pattern where just uh, the the league sees what they have now and says okay I got this. But I think for the first start, he at least showed some signs of having a little bit of staying power. And I think uh, you know, that's more than you can say about Despagne's first time out. Yeah, I mean, Despagne and Santana only lasted three starts. So it's not a very high bar to clear for Detweiler. But yeah. he'll be making his next start against the Tigers. He's got the nightcap of the doubleheader. Uh, but after that, I think that's his last start before the All-Star break. And then it's just a matter of, do you want him to pitch in Oakland? Do you want him to pitch in Kansas City? Do they find out that Dylan Covey's healthy and do they make a swap there? I'll be interesting to see. 
uh, on how long Detweiler will be on the White Sox. But in his first start with the White Sox, he did what I think the team asked him to do is to keep him in the game, especially against such a very good starting pitcher that's had the best of the White Sox over the years. And he delivered. Yeah, short rest too. Short rest. Uh, I think it was only on three days Even rest. more so. impressive. Got five innings out of him, economical, and uh, you know credit Rick Renteria for not uh, looking a gift horse in the mouth and uh, wanting more. He I managed, thought Renteria man- managed this series well. Yeah, he man- like he's got a couple different modes, um, and I think in this case he you know he has a mode where he manages to win, like where he uh, kind of uh, either he stretches guys out past their normal usage, like Aaron Bummer for more than one inning, uh, Alex Colome for four and five outs. He has ones where just you know, that Kelvin Herrera moment where he looked like he wanted to go to the mound uh, because there's a righty at the plate and Aaron Bummer wasn't looking great. And he just and he said, like, nah, <laughs> we need this out. And he has that mode sometimes where he really wants to win, whether it's you know, because there's a losing streak or because uh, he has some flexibility with schedule, allowing him to uh, go a bit harder with some relievers or, you know, just a big game where he wants to get a win for somebody or against somebody. Um, there haven't been a lot of those, but I think it's, I guess that's what encouraged me about him is that he does have that mode where at least when it comes to pitching, he'll, he'll, uh, break conventional, uh, usage patterns and norms and, and really go for the best talent on the mound for a given situation. I think, you know, maybe the offensive strategy is a little bit behind and uh, a little bit too bunt heavy and the hit and run in Fenway park was a bad idea with Larry Garcia. So, I mean, like, I think he still sometimes uh, has the wrong ideas offensively, but I think, you know, we, we do see an extra gear from him when it comes to the bullpen. Now on the offensive side, Eloy Jimenez had two more home runs in this series and he had the best month of his young career hitting eight home runs in June he batted 284 with a 340 on base percentage, and he slugged 602. More of that. That would be great moving forward uh, from your slugging mm-hmm. left fielder. But Yoan Makata, Jim, in 18 games in June, despite the knee injury and the back issues, he hit 381 with a 435 on base percentage and slugged 667. Is it time to just keep him batting second in the lineup? all of the time, regardless of the handiness of the pitchers? Well, I think it's uh, worth trying, especially now with Tim Anderson out. I think when Tim Anderson is healthy, uh, you know, having Garcia up top or, you know, whoever wants up top and then Anderson seconds and then having Mankata a bit down further, you know, it's not a bad idea. And, and I think it's for that, but I, I, I'm more or less for that. But I think with Anderson out and with like, John Jay and Charlie Tilson, your next best on base guys, you know, and, and, you know, maybe Jay's been impressive so far. I've liked the way he's approached the game. Uh, and I wouldn't have problems necessarily seeing him lefty lefty up top, but I think, you know, when you look at the rest of the lineup, uh, there isn't a whole lot there. And I think as long as Mankata's right-handed swing is doing the job and right now it seems to be, uh, I, I think I would go with him. And, uh, uh right now I'm looking up his batting splits. I'm curious, like when you look at, you know, when you try to divide his splits uh, month to month, uh, I'm, I'm looking to see if I can find his June splits as a righty only. It's going to take a bit of time, but uh, bear with me and uh, I'll bring that up, but keep going. Yeah, I think he should be batting second. I mean, he's now hit two home runs batting right-handed. The home run that he had on Sunday, he just, it looked like he just flicked it. I mean, it's, it's such an effortless swing now on the right-handed side where before it looked like there was a lot of effort for Mankata. Maybe if he had an issue with velocity, 
because he doesn't have problems with velocity when he swings left-handed. But I mean, he just—he's able to poke it out. He just has—I think he's got more strength than he knows in his swing. That if he just continues to put the bat on the ball, great things are going to happen. I mean, again, Aloy had a terrific June, and I thought, wow, he is the White Sox hitter of the month. But then quietly, Yohan Mikata hits 381 uh, with a 667 <laughs> slugging percentage. I mean, it's just. It is absolutely crazy on the numbers that he posted. Lots of extra base hits in this month, many doubles, uh, a couple of triples added to the mix. He hit four home runs. He had four doubles. Uh, he only struck out 17 times and he walked five times. So the walks are starting to get there. It's just a matter of keeping him healthy in the lineup every day. But I I know that Rick Renteri has been you know, flexible with his lineup. And even though he's got his stalwarts, like he has Jose Abreu bat third all the time and James McCann always bats cleanup when they're in the lineup. But I think Yuan Mikata moving forward, instead of having him bat second when he's batting left-handed and then having him bat seventh when he's batting right-handed, that I think he's done enough in the month of June, especially making the progress hitting right-handed, that he should stick batting second moving forward. Okay, I'm looking at his splits right now. Um, this is not including today's game, but entering today, uh, entering Sunday rather, for people listening tomorrow, uh, he was 5 for 15 with uh, homer, two doubles, two walks, and six strikeouts. So now you add a homer to that um, you know, with his uh, homer on Sunday. Pretty good. I, I think there's just, you know, it, that I guess more or less confirms what my thought was. I was seeing more power from it, more impact uh, with his barrel. Um you know, with the right-handed swing, there is more swing and miss though on that side. I think there, he has the tendency to maybe get out in front of breaking balls more and swing over them. Uh, there's a bit more of that. So I think that'd be my one caution is if maybe you're facing a really tough left-handed pitcher, like a Chris Sale grade one, you know, maybe I wouldn't, uh, you'll have him batting seconds to face, you know, that array of sliders and breaking stuff. But uh, it seems like he is able to uh, square up more stuff, stay back a bit more and uh, getting more lift. Cause I think that was the other thing with his right-handed swing. A lot more grounders, a lot uh, less impressive contact, but I think now he's learned how to lift a bit more. Doesn't have like still the dramatic uh, power arc of his left-handed swing, but it's getting there. We are seeing improvements. Hashtag progress, which is what we want to see during the rebuild season. But Yohan Mikata now is over. He's hitting over 300. Offensively, this has just been a tremendous first half for him and hopefully continues into the second half because his 2019 numbers are looking way better than his 2018 numbers. And I don't think uh, we're hearing anyone call him a bust anymore. uh, Like we heard some whispers after the 2018 season, but after this series, the white Sox again, they're off on Monday, but they will be playing four games against the Detroit tigers in three days, which means if the white Sox sweep the tigers, they could be above 500, baby, later this week. How about that level of positivity? Before that, though, it's time to play our new favorite game, Buy, Sell, or Hold. We need an audience, Jim. Uh, live audience. Yay! Thank you. It's our third week in a row playing this game. Week one, Hold had the majority. Last week, with Chris Swick of Yahoo!, Fans and listeners agreed with him that the White Sox should sell. Now in the third week, after winning the series against the Twins, and they're at 39-42, and where is your head at, Jim, on what the White Sox should do prior to the trade deadline? 
I would say I would stick with my answer from a couple weeks ago where I said bye and I came up with the idea of like a Chris Archer type. But when you look at all the injuries that the farm system has suffered, I think that might force him into a hold. Yeah, let's talk about those prospect injuries. Jimmy Lambert, Zach Birdie, Ryan Burr, all out for the season, along with Ian Hamilton, who suffered a freak injury. He got hit by a foul ball in the dugout, and they need to reconstruct his jaw. Uh, so it just that's four players out for the season. Out of their top 20 prospects, that's now six of their top 20 that are going to miss the rest of the 2019 season. And it could grow to eight, depending on the injury status of Jake Berger, who still hasn't played, and he's got a bruised heel, which sounds like it's pretty significant enough that he can't play in the Arizona uh, League right now uh, in games. And Luis Basabe. We haven't heard anything about Luis Basabe as he's been going through injuries as well, and he's missing significant development time. So we could have up to eight of the top 20 not play again, for the 2019 season, which is a huge blow, especially for Rick Hahn. I mean, any idea as a White Sox fan, if you're listening to this and you're trying to come up with trades and what the White Sox could possibly do to add to the 25-man roster to make this transition from a rebuilder to contender, I think outside their top five prospects, uh, Luis Robert, Michael Kopech, Dylan Cease, Nick Magical, and Andrew Vaughn. I don't think they're going to be touching those prospects, Jim, in any deals. But from 6 through 20, it's either guys that are out with severe injuries or players that are underperforming. So I don't know what Rick Hahn has in stock to possibly move for a, a I don't know, an average or above average major leaguer right now. I would say guys who are hurt, guys who are underperforming, and Steel Walker. Okay. I've, I'm, I'm sorry. I forgot about Steel Walker. Yeah, but really, that's that's the only one you're forgetting. And he's, you know, he's been, you know, June has been the month where he started to distinguish himself. Before June, he wasn't really doing much of anything in Winston-Salem. Nothing bad, but nothing great. Uh, you know, especially for a second-round prospect out of college, you'd expect a bit more, but now he's delivering that more. Yeah. So is he the most valuable prospect they... They could offer in a trade? Probably. You know, in that second tier? Uh, yeah. Looks like it. Because, I mean, especially I especially now, you know, with this, uh, you know, most recent draft in the White Sox picking a different course with prep high school pitchers. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't count on somebody like uh, Matthew Thompson or Andrew Dahlquist being in the conversation yet because they're really... Uh, Nobody has seen them yet in a pro uniform. So I think it's going to take a while for them to develop any kind of uh, considerable trade value. So yeah, it's basically Steel Walker. And then uh, it would be, I think right now, when you look at the performances like, you know, Rutherford, Basabe, you know, if, you know, Gonzalez, if another team were very interested in them, I would be a bit curious about what I was missing. Exactly. Like, what do you see on <laughs> Trackman that we don't? Yeah. That suggests that, yeah, we can take this guy and make him into a major leaguer. Yeah, we'll buy low on him and uh, reap the benefits. Yeah, I can see like the Houston Astros taking Blake Rutherford and all of a sudden being the replacement for Josh Reddick, you know? Yeah, or the Yankees doing that with anybody. Right. Teams that are far superior in their player development efforts. Things that came to light, if you read the MVP machine, uh, which again, we had Travis Sawcheck on the podcast last week. So if you didn't listen to that interview, you can go back to that episode and listen to it. yeah, so I I think looking at the White Sox rebuild, the core is forming together. 
and there is a lot to be excited about. But it does have a feeling of 2015 again, Jim, where you look at the farm system and it's like, yes, there is a second wave coming, but is there a third wave? Because again, they're underperforming or they're just hurt. And I don't know if some of that, some of that is out of the side of the White Sox control of the seriousness of their injuries, but the underperforming guys, I know Rutherford's hitting in June, but he did not hit in April and May. Luis Gonzalez, I know is hitting in June, but again, he didn't hit in April or May. People are raving about Gavin Sheets hitting for power. He's still slugging below 400 for the season. Uh, You know, all these guys are underperforming. That's part of your player development efforts. And that has to get better, Jim. Yeah, Gavin Sheets, uh, seven doubles on the season. So he's got nine homers, but only seven doubles, still not uh, 20 extra base hits yet. So that's, yeah, that's reflected in the slugging percentage, but I'm kind of fascinated by his doubles total. But yeah, it's really going to hinge a lot on whether they figure out how to rehab guys from Tommy John surgery. I think that's my biggest concern when you look at the list, you know, Kopech, Dunning, Lambert, Birdie, you know, is still coming back. Yeah, Mike Rodolfo to a lesser extent because... He was always kind of a lottery ticket in a way, but I think when you look at the pitching staff and just having so much riding on Tommy John surgery and not seeing, you know, aside from Aaron Bummer, not seeing any you know, recent examples of a guy coming back from Tommy John surgery under the watch of the White Sox and coming back in a timely fashion. I should include Carlos Rodon as well if you're looking for like 2020 turnaround. Um, you know, he'd be included in that too, but yeah, just the getting some kind of uh, ability to get a handle on Tommy John rehab and getting guys back within like a 15th month t- timetable, you know, maybe not like a hundred percent in 15 months, you know, cause I think the velocity comes back before the command does. And there's usually like, they get back to the majors, but then they have to uh, reestablish their pitch ability. So maybe not like all the way back in 15 months, but at least pitching every five days and having all their stuff back. It would be nice to see because I mean, it, especially with Kopech, I think uh, getting his, recovery rights and in a timely fashion to where you're not burning all the service time and uh, losing these key years of his development, I think is key. Oh, it's more than key. Yeah. <laughs> like if, if they can, if Michael Kopech cannot recover, then I don't know what Rick Hahn's going to do with the starting rotation. They are banking a lot on Michael Kopech's recovery for even the 2020 season, right? We're penciling him in, in the starting rotation. Yeah. And, uh, it's uh with Birdie taking a while to come back and and you know taking like basically 24 months to come back and still not have his Louisville fastball and you know having Nate Jones have complications for him afterwards and having Mike Rodolfo have complications afterward like there's just not a good track record right now and I think uh, having Kopech being first in line for this next wave of them I'd almost rather have Dean Dunning go first just because we know that he's like, yeah, he's going to be more of a guy who fills in the back end of a rotation. Maybe he can make one more step. But I think when you look at the scouting reports, like they didn't count on him being like the, the, the difference maker that Kopech was. So I think, uh, you know, having him be the, the, the front line of this, uh, I, I guess this, this process that we don't know whether the White Sox have mastered is a little bit troubling to me. Yeah, again, the core looks really solid, if not even better than solid, one that you can dream and hope on. And we're kind of seeing that this season that they are overachieving from their expected win-loss record based on run differential. The White Sox should be five games worse. So there you go. They're overachieving by five games. But yeah, again, the depth is what we've been talking about. 
I mean, we've been podcasting for six seasons, Jim, and that was the downfall of the 2015-2016 White Sox team. They don't have the depth for any of the players to come in and step in to take over that production. And we're going to see that over the next four to six weeks with Tim Anderson on the injured list. And Lurie Garcia is trying to do his best holding down shortstop, but we talked about it on Sox Machine Live. You open up another spot, another hole in the roster, and now you're playing guys like Ryan Cordell and Charlie Tilson in center field when they're not center fielders. So hopefully the prospects stay healthy. Hopefully Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal continue to kill it. They're going to be in the Futures game during the All-Star break. That is a great honor for them, and they've been awesome at double A. But, man, it would go a long way for Rick Hahn if Rutherford and Gonzalez and Sheets and anybody else in the minor leagues have a really strong second half. Not, not only to maybe help with the White Sox in the depth chart, but definitely help out Rick Hahn to have better trade assets or at least more attractive trade assets. So I'm with you. The White Sox should hold at this moment. And 56% of our fans and listeners, Jim, agree with us. So week three, we're at hold. So week one, hold. Week two, sell. Week three, hold. We'll see what week four has in store as we move with each week closer to the July 31st trade deadline. So next, let's preview the Chicago White Sox and Detroit Tigers series. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way in buying tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand up from the crowd. And this is how they did it. First, they concentrated on customer satisfaction and they got over 50,000 five-star reviews in their app store and they also pull in millions of tickets from all over the web and they rate each deal on a scale of one to ten and they display them on an interactive seat map so you can get a good understanding what the view is from the seats that you're shopping for and SeatGeek breaks down the details the green dots those are good deals buy those tickets the red dots stay away those tickets are overpriced and every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with confidence on SeatGeek. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets for White Sox games. As a matter of fact, I bought eight tickets off SeatGeek for the July 4th game between the White Sox and Tigers. I figured, you know, what better way to spend 4th of July at a baseball game, do some tailgating, watch the White Sox hopefully beat up the Detroit Tigers. If you're looking for tickets this week, especially if you want to get tickets for Dylan Cease's first start, those tickets are at $15 right now on SeatGeek, and for 4th of July, they are $16. And the best part is, is that our listeners get to save $10 off their first purchase. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone and use promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE to save $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And with the Detroit Tigers coming into town, again, it's four games in three days. The Tigers are 27-52. and 52. I think they have a worse winning percentage than the Kansas City Royals. They do, so they are technically last in the American League Central. In their last 10 games, they are 1-9. and nine. They have a negative 150 run differential. They are gunning for the number one pick in the 2020 draft with the way they've been playing recently. 
And your pitching problems for this series on Tuesday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. It's their best pitcher on the mound. It's Matthew Boyd against Ronaldo Lopez for the White Sox. Fun fact, Boyd is 0-5 with a 6.23 ERA and 7 starts at guaranteed rate field. He does not pitch well at the south side, and hopefully that continues. On Wednesday, again, this is a doubleheader. At 1.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Daniel Norris for Detroit. And again, it's Dylan Cease for the White Sox. On Wednesday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it is to be announced for the Tigers. It will be Ross Detweiler taking the ball in the nightcap. And on 4th of July, it is Avon Nova for the White Sox, and the Tigers haven't figured out their starting rotation yet for that U.S. holiday. How do you feel about this series, Jim? Well, you know, a lot of lefties. Again, we've seen the White Sox. I think you know, we're not used to them seeing so many lefties. There was a t- long time in the AL Central where the White Sox basically had all of them. So they could get by with a, uh, uh, or actually they, they couldn't get by. They had a right-handed lineup and they're always looking for lefty bats. And now I think this year we've seen that flip to where they're facing a ton of lefty starters. But yeah, Boyd's a lefty. Uh, Norris is lefty. Boyd's given up, I think, 10 homers uh, in June. So between him and Reynaldo Lopez, that could be a ton of homers. <laughs> that, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that game, and, and I would recommend uh, seats in the, uh, in, in the left field bleachers for that one. But yeah, other, otherwise, I think, you know, just this should be a series where they, yeah, I guess you might call it a trap series after, you know, 15 tough games and pat myself on the back for that seven and eight record with the White Sox coming through. Yeah, buddy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Picking the over and actually having them deliver on it. It's great, but yeah, it's just a time to kick the Tigers while they're down. They've been miserable. They've had really a lot of tough times offensively. So I think for for Lopez especially, you know, having him uh, show up for a start and not having these these quality starts like the Avon Nova is always good for like five to six innings and four to five runs. It would be great to have. Yeah, I think Lopez has fallen the same trap, and I think it'd be nice to get them out of it and just have an inning, yeah, an outing where they throw six innings and actually lower their ERAs safely out of the sixes. I got a crazy prediction. I'm going to go for it. I'm thinking the White Sox sweep here. I think the White Sox are going to win all four games in three days against the Tigers. I think that's a combination of my belief in the White Sox offense getting to Matthew Boyd and putting up some runs in these four games and the Tigers just being that bad. I mean, uh, they are bad. I think three out of four just because doubleheaders are always tough. They are very tough. Especially with the White Sox bullpen and having such a lopsided, you know, having Evan Marshall and Aaron Bummer and uh, and Alex Colome being the only relievers uh, Rick Renteria trust. It's hard to manage two games to win like that. So I, I think three out of four is more reasonable to me, but I appreciate your boldness and I support you in that. If I am right, we're talking about an above 500 team for the White Sox as they head into the weekend against the Chicago Cubs. That weird two-game... Saturday, Sunday series. Very weird. Very weird series. So hopefully that does come to fruition. And uh, if I'm wrong, well, I'm wrong. You guys can make fun of me on Twitter uh, for being so bold. But coming up next, it's time for our first half grades of the 2019 season on the Sox Machine podcast. Oh, what's this? Zenny's 3D virtual try-on. Pretty cool, right? Wait, are those prices real? Do they have glasses for men? Yep, they also have affordable blue light glasses. Seriously? At those prices? Get them all. I like where this is going. Zenny.com. Prescription glasses starting at $6.95. It's grading time, like we always do for each half of baseball during the season. We take a moment and share what our first half grades are. And you, our listeners, participated with over 
450 submissions. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to do that. Awesome job by everyone. So, Jim, it's time for us to deliver our report card. And let's start with Jose Abreu. What grade would you give Abreu for his first half? I would give him a C. And is it just because of his on-base percentage woes? Yeah, I think yeah, some the on-base percentage, the uh, and and also the the lower average there. The defense hasn't been great, uh, especially early on. You could see the difference when Yonder Alonso was at first base versus Abreu. I think it's shaping up, but I think the C represents the amount of improvement that's possible for him. So, I think if I gave him any higher, it would seem like if he had a typical, you know, Abreuish. Uh, second half, then I would want to give him some room to grade him accordingly. Okay, I gave him a B. I know the on-base percentage is down. It's like 310 now. But he still has an above 800 OPS. And I think it's because he's selling out for power to enhance his value during his contract year, Jim. <laughs> That's at least what it looks hmm. like to me. Like he's He's trying to be the leader. He's trying to be that run producer the White Sox need. But it also helps in contract negotiations if he hits 30-plus home runs and drives in more than 100 RBIs. Uh, so I, I, I give him a B at the moment. Uh, but, yeah, if his, if his on-base percentage was still below 300, I'd be with you on a C. So it's I'm, I'm in between a B and a C. Uh, for our listeners, 54% give Jose Abreu a B. So let's move over to second base. Yomer Sanchez, what grade would you give Yomer? Give him a C-. C minus. I gave him a C. Uh, I don't usually do the minuses or pluses. Yeah. But yeah, it's like, it's not quite a C to me, but all, he got out of the D's. Yeah. The, so I'd say if I had to give him a, a round grade, I would say C, but. Yeah, the glove is dependable again at second base after his early season woes. If you remember that, you just made errors that we did not see him make. Uh, but the, the bat, Jim, has greatly regressed this season and makes me wonder if he doesn't regain any offensive abilities, is he in trouble as far as not being a White Sox starter next season? And do we entertain the idea of just having Nick Magical start if Yomer Sanchez is a 600 OPS hitter? That's that's kind of, uh, I guess, a little bit bold, but uh, I think for Magical, just you know, having him being the opening day starter, but it is possible with the way Magical's playing and, and kind of my... Yeah, I have this hunch where Madrigal is just going to be a 280 hitter no matter where he goes. Like, you know, I guess he'll hit higher at the lower <laughs> levels. But I think it's just his hit tool is so unique. He might be like a, a guy who hits 280 and slugs 330 early on. But I think the bat to ball will always be there and kind of help him float. But the glove work has been really good. And I think it's been sensational as of late. So I think he's carrying his value right now uh, defensively. But yeah, the bat is uh, is barely playing right now. And another month like he had in June. And part of it's the illness. You know, having that uh, nasty fever that he had, um, you know, I imagine that doesn't help. But yeah, f- I think at this point he's playing his way out of a starting role. I don't think he was supposed to be starting. You know, I think they're hoping on Manny Machado being there and then you're know, keeping Moncada at second. But uh, yeah, I think this would be the last year of him doing that. And I think he'll kind of fade out of that role. All right. So moving over to shortstop, Tim Anderson. I think this is a pretty easy one. Oh, by the way, uh, the fans and listeners gave Yomer Sanchez also a C, 54%. Um, but what grade would you give Tim Anderson, Jim? I would give him a B. Why a B? 
Because the defense. Uh, you're concerned about the defense? Uh, yeah, not concerned so much, but just, uh, yeah, I think you know, he's somebody who's going to run hot and cold and have these ugly errors, and, and I don't want to punish him too much for that just because you get in this this habit where you just focus on the players a guy uh, doesn't make, and then you end up with, like, uh, you know, that's what led to... Uh, you know, Royce Clayton replacing Jose Valentin because the Valentin made a ton of errors. And that's what really said. Deonor Navarro replacing Tyler Flowers. You just get, <coughs> sorry, you just get so hung up on what a player can't do that you don't pay attention to what he can, but just the defense, he's made a lot more errors uh, than he did at the second half of last year. And I think he can tighten that up. Um, so I think that's the one reason why I don't keep him. Yeah. Cause I think a, to me represents like uh, no reasonable improvement can be made. And I think, you know, bet wise, I don't, you know, when you look at his season numbers, I don't think much of a reasonable improvement can be made, but the defense I think has been lagging a bit and what keeps him from being like a, a four to five win player. Okay. I gave him an A cause I, he was exceeding expectations for me. So that's why I give him an A 59% of our fans listeners also gave Tim Anderson an A moving from shortstop to third. For Yohan Makata, for me, I'm giving him an A because of the transition from second to third. And offensively, I think he's hitting right where we were hoping and dreaming that he would be as an offensive player. How about you, Jim? What grade would you give Makata? Yep, that's an A. At this point in time, as you mentioned, the switch from second to third, his improvement as a right-handed hitter, everything's where you want to see him. So I think uh, you know there there can be improvement going forward, but I think for one season, uh, I think he's doing about all you could expect and more. Seventy three percent of our fans listeners gave Mikata an A, so that that's a big jump uh, compared to all the players so far. There's one that's even bigger. We'll get to him in a moment. Next, let's move to left field and Aloy Jimenez. What grade would you give Aloy for his first half? He feels like a C. I'm with you on the C. Uh, our fans and listeners are not. 63.9% gave Aloy a B. And I wonder if it's because of his performance in June, which I get it, recency bias. Uh, offensively, he's getting there. His weighted runs created plus or OPS plus, whichever one that you want to use, is at 109. But I feel like, Jim, in order for him to be the type of player that we think that he's going to provide value to the White Sox. He needs to be at 120 plus in those two metrics. He needs to be at least 20% better than league average offensively to make up for his defense. And the bat's not quite there. And defensively, I mean, sometimes it's shades of Diane Viciedo. Although he has made a couple plays in, in this last series where they were good routes and uh, you know, he had a slide for one that I, I don't think like John Jay would have to slide for, but it wasn't because he broke wrong or broke late or, or didn't take a good angle. It was just that's how fast he got there. But you know, he made a couple of good plays going to his left, cutting down the gap and, and going back to the warning track. So there is some improvement, I think, month to month defensively. But I think you know when I look at his game and I, I look at the way he's playing on both sides of the ball, I think he's a guy who's holding his own right now and showing flashes. But uh, and, and so like C doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, it's not a failure or danger of failing, just somebody who's holding his own, but there's more improvement in there. And I, I think there's more improvement in there to where, you know, I, I think his offensive ceiling is so high that uh, I think I'm tempted to grade him just a little bit lower to give him room to improve and still be able to grade him higher. I am confident our final season grade is going to be higher than a C with Aloy. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, for a guy who's in his rookie season, I think a C is fine. 
Yeah. I was on CLTV with uh, Andy Mazur, who's been calling some games for the White Sox, and Josh Friedman over the WGN Studios. And another bold prediction, Jim. I think Aloy's got a 10-home run month coming up for him as he's figured out Major League Pitching, which if you remember that P.O. Sox question that we kind of laughed at, can Aloy lead the White Sox in home runs? Oh, I didn't laugh. I know you didn't laugh. I did. Uh, that may come to fruition <laughs> if he keeps hitting like this, at least slugging-wise. Yeah, my biggest reservation was just whether he would stay healthy enough, given the way he was throwing his body around awkwardly in left field, to be able to uh, close the gap on Abreu. But yeah, right now Abreu's got 19, Jimenez and Mancada have 14. And I think Jimenez is going to catch Abreu. So, uh, like I said, I think he's got a 10 home run month coming up, which is going to be very exciting. So moving from left field, let's move over to center field, or at least a player that's played there the most. Lurie Garcia, what grade would you give Lurie, Jim? See, I would give him an A. You give him an A. Okay, I gave him a B. Yeah, he was, he's just doing way more than I thought he could. Just overall, when you look at and especially I'm factoring to his uh, ability to cover shortstop while Anderson's out, just he's providing a lot more value than I thought. He stayed healthy. He's And, and even though he's been like not 100%, he's played well while not being 100%. Like that was my biggest concern about Leary is just that he couldn't, uh, you know, stay, you know, if he's going to play well, he's going to stay healthy enough to play well over the course of a whole season or even like most of a season. So I think he's, ex- I, I just don't know what more I could expect for him given, uh, you know, his track record coming into the season and how he's filling in very important positions pretty well, especially, you know, leadoff spot. It's a unique brand of leadoff hitting, but uh, I don't think it's hurting him. So I think overall, I, I don't think I could expect more than what he's delivering him. Okay. I, I get that reasoning. I gave him a B just because he's slightly below league average offensively, but the way that he's been hitting lately, as soon as he gets over 100 OPS plus or 100 weighted runs created plus, I could see my opinion flipping from B to A because, yeah, he is taking care of two critical spots defensively for the White Sox. I think he is going to be the super utility player that the White Sox count on moving forward and not Yomer Sanchez. I think Lurie Garcia has a good opportunity to stick with the White Sox when they make the transition for rebuilder to contender because of his uh, flexibility, especially position flexibility, that the White Sox can plug him in both in the infield and the outfield. Also, I think my grade might be affected by watching Ryan Cordell and Charlie Tilson in center. Like when you see him not be there and you see who's in his place, uh, I, I do think I grade him on a bit of a curve. Well, I'm glad you mentioned those two because these are the next two players on the list. Let's start with Ryan Cordell. Uh, by the way, our fans listeners gave uh, Lurie a B. 58% gave him a B. What grade would you give Ryan Cordell? Uh, probably in, I hate to say it, but probably an F. That's what I gave him. He's not a major leaguer. Yeah, it's not like not his fault. <laughs> it's like his, you know, it's he's, you know, it's I guess you know his fault if you think of talent, but like it's, you know, it's it's an audition and it's you know somebody who didn't have a great shot of sticking, but he's had some moments, but I just don't see uh, repeatable success there. Yeah, last I looked, he had a sixty-seven OPS plus, and he's not a very good defender, or at least he's not showing it, and he's already at negative zero point eight WAR. On baseball reference, I, I think it's I think it's time to move on. I'm sure he has a longer leash and he'll get more playing time in the second half. But uh, I just don't see a major leaguer when I watch Ryan Cordell. Uh, our fans listeners gave Ryan Cordell the benefit of the doubt. They gave him a D. 54% gave him a D. So moving over to Charlie Tilson then. 
Uh, a little bit of surprising grade from our fans. They gave him a C. 46% gave Charlie Tilson a C. What grade would you give Charlie Tilson? Yeah, I've, I've been tilting between D and F. Or just if you factor in the same uh, idea that you wouldn't want to see him in the mix next season as Cordell. Maybe a D just because he is he does have more fight in his at-bats. Um, but his defense is pretty bad and the extra base power isn't there. So, yeah, just I, I think he's a bit more playable than Cordell. So I guess if I'm grading him on the curve, I would give him a D to separate it. And same reasons. He gets on base more frequently than Ryan Cordell. Cordell, sure, he may have more pop at his swing, but you can't tell because he doesn't make enough contact. If I had to flip a if I had to decide who is who's got a better shot of sticking with the major league roster right now, I would pick Charlie Tilson. So that's why Tilson gets a D and Ryan Cordell gets an F. And he's average at getting on base against righties, which helps. But I think now with John Jay back, uh, I think we are seeing the difference a bit between uh just a bit. Yeah, just when it comes <laughs> to like somebody who Charlie Tilson wants to be versus you know who's actually there. Right. All right, let's move over to James McCann. And this is, I think, a slam dunk. Uh, one of the slam dunks I thought of when I was creating uh, as far as this survey, 95.6% of our fans and listeners gave James McCann an A. How about you, Jim? Yeah, A. Yeah, that's easy, right? I mean, it's the career year. He's playing out of his mind. He leads the team in OPS, as we mentioned earlier, on pace for a six-war season. Somebody gave him a C. Uh, that's got to be some Cubs fans or maybe some salty Detroit Tigers fans. Or penals. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Uh, so then, how about Wellington Castillo? What grade would you give Wellington? Yeah, F. Yeah, 52% of our listeners gave him an F. You know, I gave him a D. Uh, Signs I, of life at the end. I, I think he's somebody who was, can yeah. escape that and be a C player, but... Just uh, what he's uh, contributed, uh, you know, the, the health is not as, you know, that's just bad luck. But when it comes to the, the pitching staff performance with him there, it's not, that's also not as entirely his fault, but he doesn't have that going for him either. So just really nothing to point to. His receiving's been bad. Yeah, there's nothing in his favor. All right. Over to the pitchers. Lucas Giolito. 96% of our fans listeners gave Giolito an A. I don't know about you, 4% that gave him a B. Uh, I don't know what you are expecting from the pitcher that had the worst ERA for qualified starters last year. Uh, is this a slam dunk A for you, Jim? Yep. Yeah, me too. How about Ivan Nova? What grade would you give Nova? Probably. Ugh. <laughs> this is another one tilting between D and F. Uh, you know, it's F when it comes to ERA, D when it comes to innings. But I'm going to say F just because I think there's a bit more expected of them. Yeah, he's not pitching like he did in Pittsburgh, right? And at, yeah. after the first half of the season, I think this is a legit question. If our friend Cherizi, uh over from the 108 guys is listening, I'm not sure Nova's an upgrade over James Shields and what Shields provided last year. No, I mean, not, not when you look at the ERA and, and the run prevention. So they may have been better off just keeping James Shields rather than sending a prospect they don't even remember and taking on the salary for Ivan Nova. Yeah, I'm looking they could at, have spent that $9 million better, right? Yeah, I was just looking at Nova's uh, Pittsburgh stats just because I'm curious about the home runs and, yeah, 19 homers. And so he's on pace for 38 homers. He's never given up more than 30 in a season. And, yeah, that's probably American League moving out of PNC Park, which is, you know, really hard for right-handed hitters to, you know, hit out of. So, yeah, probably just a bad uh, 
bad fit or either that or the White Sox had uh, ideas to uh, give him a boost and they didn't work. But yeah, just when you have a 5.92 ERA, I think that's just hard to get out of F territory. All right. How about Ronaldo Lopez? Does he get an F for you? Yeah. Yeah, our fans listeners were a little bit more lenient. I, I gave Lopez an F because I was not expecting this poor of a season from him. 58.2% of our fans listeners gave Lopez a D. Yeah, I think there's a tendency to be kinder just because he's not the veteran that Nova is. You know, kind of when you look at, you know, we're talking about Tilson and Cordell and just, it feels like, you know, there's, there should be a difference between the two. But when you look at the, you know, 6.12 ERA, 22 homers, um, there's not a whole lot to like right now, just when it comes to his command. And, and when you see like, yeah, the ball flying out of the yard, I, I don't see a way that he's going to stop that right now. And that's what it makes me concerned about his viability. And I think at the end of the year, I could see a case where you say like, is he a starter? Um, has he shown any progress whatsoever? Yeah, I guess you hope that he has the Lucas Giolito trans, uh, uh, transformation in the offseason that makes him stick. But right now, I think I don't see anything repeatable there. I hope he figures it out. I hope that he finds maybe a personal pitching coach or he goes to one of these companies like Driveline or a pitcher whisperer that could help him out with his mechanics and find the groove that he was on to end the 2018 season because... Yeah, this isn't going to fly. It's the same type of conversation we were having about Lucas Giolito last year. Giolito put in the effort in the offseason, and he's dramatically different. He's going to the All-Star game. I think before the year, if we said, hey, a White Sox starting pitcher is going to go to the All-Star game, I think a lot of people would have picked Ronaldo Lopez to be that pitcher over Lucas Giolito. But that hasn't been the case. So hopefully um, for Lopez, he makes some progress in the second half. He really works hard in the offseason because we're pretty much at the verge of this being a lost season already for Ronaldo Lopez. And that's a little bit disappointing. Yeah, I guess there is a half to work with. And I get, I think if I were making the argument to get him out of F territory, both Nova and Lopez, they're on pace to throw more than 180 innings. And that does provide some value. But I think, you know, as you mentioned with Shields, we saw what that profile looks like when it actually provides value to the team. And they're pretty far away from that. Now, moving from the starting pitchers, how about the bullpen? Just grading the bullpen as a whole. So even the good pitchers and the bad performances all together... How would you grade the bullpen? I would say a C. Okay. Our fans listeners gave the bullpen a B. I'm going to assume that's because of Aaron Bummer and Alex Colome. Uh, th- that's what I, I, if I did minuses, it'd be like a B minus. I'm between a B and C. Yeah. Um, because Kelvin yep. Herrera and Jace Fry have not been good. So I guess I tilt to B Jim because Aaron Bummer, Evan Marshall and Alex Colome they have been good, and that's why I think I tilted to give them a better grade. Yeah, I think yeah, B minus is where or C plus is where I'm kind of leaning. But uh, yeah, they've been really good at protecting the leads that they've had. Uh, that's that's one thing I would put in their favor. So maybe yeah, B minus. I, I think I would go to that now because that's a big part of the job is not blowing games where you're leading in the second half of it. And the White Sox have been great at that. You know, there, there are, there have been some horrible performances like, you know, the, the whole lefty depth right now is Aaron Bummer. And that's it. Cause Fry has been hurt and bad. And uh, Caleb Ferrer was a disaster and Herrera has been awful. And Marshall's kind of on the verge of having that, uh, you know, Matt Albers thing happen to him where just like the sinker stops being as powerful or hitters catch onto it and blows up on them. But I think for the first half alone, yeah, better than a C. But a B feels like uh, it doesn't quite encapsulate everything wrong that happened. Okay, that's fair. 
So moving away from the players, the next two, we're going to start with the manager, Rick Renteria. What grade would you give Renteria for the first half of this season? See, I, want to, I, I feel like I want to give him a B. I'm giving him a B because, as I mentioned before, the White Sox are overachieving by five games over I, their run differential. I feel I, I, I feel like I've done a lot of defending of him uh, this uh uh, this season, just because, as mentioned, the re- the record with uh, with leads in late innings, I think they're like twenty eight, twenty nine. I haven't checked it, you know since this uh, a few games ago, but I think they're like twenty eight and one when leading after six, which is wow, really damn just good. One loss, yeah. So I mean, he's been he's been making the right calls, even though he doesn't have like a really well set you know seven eight nine. He's got nine set with Kalame. But he's kind of had to make it up as he goes along with seven and eight, and he still managed to get these, uh, you know, these these wins. So I I think that's a big part of the manager's job. And I think you know when you see teams like Kansas City break out and Baltimore when they had those years where they exceeded projections, it was all because you know the the right strings are pulled in the bullpen. And I think that's pretty much the most important thing you can do. And I think you know we've seen some issues with third time through, and I'd like to. Uh, see him go with an opener and uh you know bunting is obviously a popular topic and, and lineup construction seems like uh, he could uh, be a bit more adventurous with that but i think when it comes to actually putting his team in a position to get wins as the game situation goes along i think it's been hard to top the way he's done it in late innings with the flawed roster so uh, i feel like a b is uh in order i'm giving him a b because his 25 man roster he's got a very exciting core played paired with players that should not be in the major leagues. And yeah, that's got to be tough. He only has, when Tim Anderson is healthy, he's got six hitters that are league average or better. And pitchers right now, he only has five pitchers out of a staff of 13 that are league average or better. And right now he's got this team three games below 500 at the halfway mark. I, I agree the bunting is frustrating. The lineup construction could be frustrating. And sometimes how he managed the bullpen uh, could be incorrectly. But he's got this team, again, overachieving by five great games. I, I'm I'm giving Renteria a B for that. And they've already used 40 guys this year. Jesus. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's a lot of churn. Speaking of churn, let's talk about the guy that's responsible for that churn. The general manager, Rick Hahn. So this isn't about Rick Hahn and his overall job status. This is Rick Hahn's performance in the first half on supplying a 25-man roster to Rick Renteria. What grade would you give Rick Hahn? When it, is, so this doesn't factor in his offseason? Not his offseason. We talked about that at okay. the beginning of the year. Uh, Obviously, the offseason would influence what happened in the first half. Yeah, so I'm trying to separate. I guess like a C... I haven't felt like, you know, now that Dylan Cease is up, I, I think uh, that's that does close one loose end I had for him. I had this as a D. I made it a C when he DFA'd Yonder Alonso. Yeah. He, he, if those carried into the second half, both the situations, not bringing up Dylan Cease or, or missing the window to bring him up, uh, having Yonder Alonso carry in the second half, I think he's been... Fairly aggressive with the well, in like I said, like if he had if he factored in the starters he brought into the season, I think uh, that would be uh, an F. Uh, but when it comes to you know cycling through guys like Santana and Banuelos and uh, Despagne and Detweiler and now Cease, you know that's like at least he's not trying to uh, uh, you know 
just get something out of completely nothing. But yeah, just feels like a C. Like he hasn't done anything terribly, or the things that were lagging have been closed. So yeah. 44% from our fans listeners gave Renteria a C. 33% gave Rickon a D. That was the most popular answer. 32% a C for Rickon, 21% an F, and only 10% a B. So the diehard Rickon supporters uh, are either fading on Rickon or not coming out in numbers supporting him still. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, this easily would have been a D if he did not call up Dylan Cease. And he in Yonder Alonso would still be on the twenty-five man roster. But at least he admitted that that was a mistake and he corrected that mistake. And now he's felt based on timing that it's worthwhile to call up Dylan Cease. Uh so that's why I give him the boost in the grade, but it's not a very encouraging C. I still feel like he should be a little bit more aggressive and be more flexible with the call-ups, especially when it comes to Luis Robert. I still would like to see him in September. I think he's just been playing too well at AA. I think he's ready for another challenge, and the White Sox, continue sh- they should continue to be aggressive with him. So this all leads up to wins, right? As well as how well the players have been playing and how well Rick Renteria is managing them and what kind of players that Rick Hahn is feeding into the clubhouse for Rick Renteria so the final question was an over-under, and it was 73.5 wins for the White Sox in 2019. Are the are fans taking the over for that amount or the under? So for Jim, where are you at for the over-under? I feel like they can get the over. It's a good over-under, though. It is. I think the White Sox, I'm going to say 75 now. I think they can get to 75 wins on the season. So I'm taking the over as well. Yeah, the Central is really bad. Yeah, the, yeah. Especially depending on what the Indians do. See, I, I'm i surprised on how well they are playing. But then again, this weekend, oh my God, losing back-to-back games to Baltimore 13 to nothing. They only scored <laughs> two runs in Baltimore this weekend. Yeah. So when you think that they're starting to play better, and now they have control of one of the wildcard spots, then they fade pretty hard. But I don't, I don't feel like they're going to quit now. So I think that could still be a tougher test for the White Sox, even though they have the advantage. But I think the White Sox will finish 75 and 87 now, which is better than the 70 and 92 prediction that I had at the beginning of the season. And 69.7% of our fans and listeners are taking the over. They're buying into the White Sox, exceeding expectations from this preseason. Yeah, I think if they don't sell... And I don't think they're going to, you know, like Alex Colomay or, or somebody like that, where they don't really have anybody in line to replace them. You know, we've seen that with previous deadlines when they sell, you know, like the, the David Robertson, Jose Quintana, you know, this one where they just completely wiped out a lot of their top performers and August was rough. I don't think they're going to have that kind of August reckoning. And the fact that they're on a 78 win pace with Reynaldo Lopez and Ivan Nova pitching as poorly as they are, if either of them improves, uh, assuming the bullpen doesn't collapse, and that's the, the other reason I'm not quite uh, entirely bullish on them like sustaining the 78-win team. There should be regression. They should lose more late-inning games just based on you know the numbers. But when it comes to the, the starting pitching, it's been so bad that any kind of improvement, be it from Cease or be it from Lopez, or even if Detweiler turns out to be the rando good half, just like there should be a way to get better performances to supplement this core that should be... Um, you're looking good for 2020. 
I agree. And I think the rebuild phase is over after this season. And we need to start talking about a White Sox team that's making that transition from rebuilder to contender for the 2020 season. And I think the White Sox are making that next step by having Dylan C start on Wednesday. And hopefully they can continue overachieving into the second half. It'd be very exciting if they could continue to hover around 500. Definitely give us something to to root for. I know it's not a postseason spot. Uh, it looks like that's going to take about 92 wins at least to get one of the wild cards this year in the American League. Um, but hey, it's been it's been a very long time since the White Sox finished above 500 or even at 500 since 2012. Uh, so I say root for the wins because if the White Sox are winning, that's meaning that the young core is producing and progressing, and those are all good things for a still rebuilding White Sox team. But again, thank you to everyone that participated in the grading for the first half. Greatly appreciate you guys taking the time to do so. But coming up next on the Sox Machine Podcast, it's Jim with the Minor League Report. This week's Minor League Report has a lot of good news and a lot of awful news. You know, some of the good, Dylan Cease is coming up. Also, Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal were selected to participate in the Futures game, and the White Sox came to terms with all of their first and second day draft picks, with Andrew Vaughn making his debut on Sunday night. But then Rick Hahn had to debrief the media on a number of season-ending injuries. Jimmy Lambert, out for the year, Tommy John surgery. Ryan Burr, out for the year, Tommy John surgery. Zach Birdie, out for the year, torn patellar ligament. Ian Hamilton, out for the year. Multiple facial fractures after a foul ball nailed him in the jaw in the dugout. And last, and technically least in the good way, Jake Berger might actually be able to appear in an affiliated ballgame this year, but it's not a guarantee. He's dealing with a left heel bruise that's supposedly unrelated to the pair of Achilles ruptures, but still close enough to warrant extreme caution. If he can't come back, he'll miss two entire full seasons. Add it all up, and seven of the top 20 prospects on MLB's preseason list are done for the year. Throw in underperformances across multiple levels, and the White Sox are going to be hard-pressed to have anybody to deal with the deadline. Nevertheless, we press on by jogging through the affiliates. With Cease getting the call to Chicago, Charlotte is down to Kyle Kubat, Danny Mendick, Yermin Mercedes, and Sevi Zavala as prospects worth following. Kubat threw a strong seven innings on Saturday, and Mercedes is enjoying the enhanced hitting environment in the International League. He's 11 for 24 with two homers and four doubles over his first seven games. Down in Birmingham, the Barons are atop the second half standings after winning their fifth straight game on Sunday, and it's because Robert and Madrigal are getting some help behind them. Specifically, Blake Rutherford, who wrapped up a June in which he hit 365 over 27 games, which is obviously great. There are still concerns. He struck out 26 times over 27 games, and only 7 of his 38 hits went for extra bases. But it'll take success however he can get it. Luis Gonzalez also started to pick it up over the last week or so, and he's got the walk-to-strikeout ratio more in his favor when it comes to predicting who will have the better July. Pitching-wise, Lincoln Hensman put together three strong starts, but he's only got 15 strikeouts over 29 innings so far. The sinker sinks, but that's a hard way to make a living in 2019. In Winston-Salem, Connor Pilkington is still oscillating between dominant and hittable. He gave up 6 runs and 11 hits over 5 innings his last time out, and balances out to a 6.09 ERA in Winston-Salem so far. Steel Walker put the finishing touches on a June in which he hit 330 with 10 extra base hits to just 11 strikeouts over 22 games. A promotion to Birmingham looks within his reach, perhaps if Luis Robert gets the bump to Charlotte. Tyler Johnson was also promoted to Winston-Salem as he gets his season started in earnest, and he's looked good in his first few games back from his lat injury. 
Kannapolis is hitting the ball hard again, and Bryce Bush seems to have gotten past his strikeout binge. He finished his week with his third consecutive K-free game. Meanwhile, he's raised his average from 194 to 214 over that time, so here's hoping he's finally found stable ground after a season that's redefined hot and cold. He's backed by Romy Gonzalez and Corey Zingari, both of whom are picking it up after struggling over the first three weeks of June. Also, Lennon Sosa drew nine walks this month after drawing a total of six over April and May combined, so his approach is starting to come together. Great Falls spent the weekend getting clubbed by Idaho Falls, but there are some encouraging offensive performances in there. For instance, shortstop Kelvin Maldonado, last year's 11th round pick, is hitting 341 over his first 11 games, and he's already matched his walk total from the 38 games in the AZL last year, where he batted just 150. Luis Mieses has also enjoyed a similar jump in production, at least early on. The pitching is weak, but Ramon Pineda, who is one of only a couple pitchers of note, has allowed just one run and one walk over his first six and two-thirds innings. The AZL White Sox just received Vaughn, who struck out in his first plate appearances, so that's a bust. If he can manage to turn it around, he'll add even more power to a lineup that's getting extra base pop out of 16th round ace product DJ Gladney, Cuban signee Brian Ramos, and mysterious 18-year-old Jose Rodriguez, who is slugging 639 in his first eight games. And speaking of mysterious teenagers, some DSL White Sox are sporting insane on-base percentages. 18-year-old catcher Jefferson Mendoza leads the way at 558, with 17-year-old Panamanian Benjamin Bailey following close behind at 517. In 21 games, he's drawn 20 walks. That'll do it for the Meyer League Report. Now let's answer your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans, listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you can submit your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Socks Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, and helping support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And the questions were so good this week from our Patreon supporters. All of the questions that we have for P.O. Socks this week are from our Patreon supporters. And answering those questions, of course, is Jim. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from Mo Socks. And Mo Socks is asking, I listened with great interest to your discussion of the MVP machine. How high tech do you think the White Sox are in their approach? Is there any way to know this? And particularly with pitchers, how data-driven do you think they are in their philosophy. There's no way to know it definitively. You kind of have to go by a mix of anecdotes and, I guess, eyewitness reports and seeing what they're working with, seeing what the players say they're working with and, you know, what they point to when it comes to changes in their approach. I would say when it comes to the, I guess, the league you have, like if you if you think of like a, a plot left to right, you know, and, and, and left is the teams lagging behind, right, is teams most ahead. I imagine you have some outliers where you have like, you know, the Astros and the Dodgers and the Twins, you know, on the, on the far right, the Rays on the, on the far right of it. And then you kind of have more teams clustering in the middle and then maybe a couple of teams lagging behind. I imagine that the White Sox are in that big cluster, maybe towards the back half 
Um, you know, they have made some changes. They've you know made some changes in the hitting side with hitting uh, you know a swing analysts like Matt Lyle and Ryan Johansson. And on the pitching side, they added Everett Tiford as somebody who can interpret data and who's pitched in the majors, but can also read you know uh, TrackMan and uh, Statcast and, and everything else and and interpret it for pitchers. And we've seen that, and we've seen the equipment at the uh you know at spring training and so forth and they've posted a couple jobs on fan graphs too for developers so you know they are building and they are adding and they are you know i guess following some of the leads but i don't think they're necessarily from what i can tell and what i've heard and seen they're innovators in the space and i think you know when you when you think of teams that are leading the way uh teams i mentioned uh it seems like they're just going to be following what other teams are doing and not trying to be like woefully behind so i think that's kind of where they are right now uh and i think maybe with you know the the infrastructure of their front office and their leadership where you're talking about like rick Hahn, kenny williams and dan fabian you know with leading the the uh analytics side and you have don cooper you know lead top down pitching approach i think there's only you know so much that that infrastructure you can add to it yeah you know, i think it's kind of stapling something on a an older front office versus you know, overhauling the whole thing and having people who are naturally going to facilitate it. So that's at least my interpretation of it. Um, you know, maybe they are pleasantly surprising, but I think right now when you look at uh, the success rate on the guys they've acquired, when you look at a team like the Yankees or the Twins, you know, seeing what they do with guys who are either cast-offs or guys that they bought low on, uh, the White Sox really don't have those kind of transformations. And so I think that when you look at the evidence provided by the results they're getting, they're still behind. Very much so. Did you see the New York Yankees have now hired Drivelines Player Development Director to be their new director of pitching? I saw the headline. I didn't, I didn't uh, read into it, but yeah, I saw something yeah. to that degree. The advanced teams now have a new position called Director of Pitching. And their responsibility is all of the pitchers' progress from the minor leagues to the major leagues. And they, like, oversee the pitching coach. Yeah, that's going to be tough for the White Sox to do. As long as Don Cooper's around, yes. Because I saw Cal Bodie was uh, uh, soliciting job offers for a similar role. Yeah. He's the the head of driveline for people who don't know. Yes, and he's featured quite a bit in MVP machine. I don't know how much it would take... I, but I would hire him to be the director of player development for any of the 30 teams with the successes that they've had at driveline. I just wonder what happens if driveline closes, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, where will, where will, well, I mean, that's go? kind of the weight. I mean, that's kind of the way it's gone with like a lot of analytics, like a lot of, you know, for years, the leading analytic work was done on the outside. And now they've, you know, the teams have uh, incorporated all those guys in the fold and you're seeing less uh, groundbreaking work done on the outside. It still happens, but I mean, like when it comes to, like catcher framing and, uh, you know, pitch FX, like a lot of that work was done on the outside first, or at least, you know, a lot of it, you know, maybe there were some teams that had internal luck with it or in, internal successes, but a lot of those guys who were doing the leading work on the outside were hired to lead the way. So maybe it's coming on the mechanical side now. I think the next area is college coaches because colleges are working with the TrackMan data and they are more acceptable to the new player development efforts. And we're seeing the success for both the Cincinnati Reds and the Minnesota Twins hiring pitching coaches from the college level. 
I would like to see the White Sox hire the University of Michigan pitching coach Chris Fetter, especially in how well Michigan's pitching staff did this season, reaching the College World Series and giving Vanderbilt a scare. But we'll see. I, I doubt the White Sox would go in any of those directions. But most Sox, if you're one thinking that, wow, the White Sox could even be falling further behind in player development, player development efforts because of what the other teams are doing, uh, I I'm with you and it is a bit of a concern. Uh, and again, goes back to the guys that are underperforming in the minor leagues. Maybe the white Sox should be more adaptable to these new methods and, you know, shake things up. I don't think it would hurt the franchise if they did that. If only the white Sox had Michigan ties. Can't think of one. Yeah. Not one. It'd be great if they had a couple guys, you know? Yeah. Take about the Drawing lunch. Drawing the blank. Yeah. No Michigan guys. But most socks, thank you so much for your question. And those that are screaming at us, yes, we know they have Michigan ties. Uh, <laughs> our next question comes from Andrew Seagull. And Andrew's asking, how many injured players are going to be taking up space? And he has at least five that come to mind. On the 40 man roster in the offseason, could that cause the White Sox to lose a player or affect their ability to add players? They do have a couple. Um, I think they will have a couple spots where they do need to make a decision. Right now, uh, Kopech and Rodon are on the 60-day DL or IL. So when it comes to uh, the end of the season, they have to be re-added to the 40-man roster and spots will need to be opened up for them. So that's two spots. They're at capacity right now. Um, then there's like a second level of injured guys and and understanding how injured they are or how it affects their development. That's the uh, Mike Rodolfo, Ryan Burr, Manny Banuelos, Luis Pasave, Ian Hamilton, like all those guys being injured and, and injured to the extent where we don't know. like a case like Ryan Burr and Manny Banuelos, them being in their mid twenties, getting to their later twenties, having to miss a full season Banuelos. We don't know exactly what's going on with the shoulder, but that's typically not good. Um, you know, those might be ones where you just say like, okay, we have to open up a spot, uh, and we feel like we can replace you. So, uh, that's just unfortunate. So, I mean, those could be two spots right there. Mike Rodolfo will be a weird case given how much time he's missed and how he'll already be in his, uh, uh, entering his last option year next year. So I'm not exactly sure how the White Sox plan to handle that and whether trying to outright him is an option. Yeah, that could be the case. Hamilton, I think, is more freaky, and they'll give him a year because of his his stuff has been, you know, it was good last year. It just happened to be the case where he had the shoulder stiffness from the car accident early on and then getting hit by the foul ball. It's just been basically like the worst luck year you can have for an, a pitcher when it comes to just random events. So I think they'll keep him, but I can see at least three guys there who could be moved and, and it opens up some spots. And then I think the rest of it will be why you're seeing so much playing time for Charlie Tilson and, and Ryan Cordell and Jose Rondon and even Daniel Polka now, like just getting a yes or no with those guys, I think is pretty important. Even if you don't want to see them up or starting or getting plate appearances, whatever, uh, whatever form their playing time takes, I think it's important just to know. Uh, because I think uh, at the end of the season, you'll have Dane Dunning and Blake Rutherford and Danny Mendick and Jimmy Lambert. And Lambert could be an interesting case when it comes to adding him, given that teams like to stash injured guys on the IL and see if they can s- somehow eke uh, 90 days of active time out of them. I could see him being a potential Rule 5 pick, but uh, right now those are the only four guys added. So you need to add four spots or maybe six spots when adding in Kopech Rodan, and I think they can do it. Well, Andrew... Thank you so much for your question, and it's something to think about going into the offseason, especially, again, the second half. As Jim mentioned, these guys, Cordell, Tilson, Polka, Rendon, it's 
it's prove it time. And if they don't, I feel like Rickon needs to be okay, Jim, with letting these guys go and, and moving on and giving other people. Yeah, and then there are guys like yeah, guys like Caleb Frere and, and uh, Cody Medeiros and Jimmy Cordero. Like there are other guys that can cut too that you know aren't hurt. They're just either redundant or not that good, especially as the uh, baseball moves into uh, eliminating the loogie role, or at least trying to. Yeah, I'm okay slashing and burning some of this 40-man roster. Open up 12 spots, you know, and find somebody else. Especially, yeah, what happens, what what, what opens up on the waivers or, or uh, you know, via trades or signings. They're, they're going to need to open up more than uh, four spots, but yeah, yeah they, they have ways they can do so it. Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Ed Casey, and Ed is asking, with the underperformance of the White Sox second-tier minor leaguers and rash of injuries hampering possible trades, and an underwhelming upcoming free agent free agent market. Is there a path to contention in 2020 or realistically, are we looking more at the 2021 season? There is, I think just because they they're on pace for 78 wins at the half with such a flawed roster. I think that speaks to the uh, one luck, you know, there, there is some luck there, but also it speaks to the strength of some of their stars. Like, you know, having Lucas Giolito breakout and Mancata being really good at third and Tim Anderson. Well, hopefully you know that the, the sprained ankle doesn't interrupt his progress, but throwing Eloy Jimenez throwing, you know, uh, uh, James McCann having uh, bringing stability to the catcher spot, even if he's not going to be star all the way through, uh, Nick Madrigal, Luis Robert, you have like enough cases to where you can get like most of a lineup pretty set. Uh, I think really when it comes to the White Sox making the next step, it will be a starting pitching. And there is Garrett Cole out there. And I think, uh, you know, when it comes to the White Sox offseason, they just need to be aggressive and they need to, you know, aggressively in a, and, and Patrick uses this in his post about Jose Breu. They need to come up with aggressive ways to compensate. And I think, you know, should Garrett Cole be healthy all the way through? It's, you know, it's hard to expect the White Sox to set the market. And if you have to bet on Jerry Reinsdorf doing that, you bet against it. But that would be the case where, okay, you know, understand, even if you don't really understand it, the idea of Manny Machado being a year too early and not wanting to spend, okay. But I think this is the year now where every free agent dollar would be expected to contribute to a team that has a decent shot at contending for the wild card if you consider like contending like 85 wins and putting them within lux reach of a wild card spot i I think the opportunity is there so i think uh um if you're looking at the offseason as like uh kicking the can towards next year i think that would be inexcusable and i think they need to really look at 2020 as the first contending year yeah they may not get garrett cole but maybe they get jake odorizzi I don't know. He's been pitching pretty decently for the twins. And then maybe they should be aggressive and go get someone like Marcel Ozuna to play one of the corner spots for the White Sox in the outfield. Add somebody else, another power bat into the lineup. I, I Yeah, watching watching Nelson Cruz with the twins is just like, yeah, I think a power bat. Yeah, I mean, if if everyone's going to start hitting 40 home runs again, right? If it's... If it, you know, we used to say, well, the bar's 200 home runs. Okay, the bar's being pushed up higher <laughs> in order to have a successful offense. 200's not going to cut it. And if you don't have those guys ready to go at AAA to join the team next year, you need to find them. And I think Marcelo Zuna would be worthwhile for the White Sox. Maybe you can get him on a four to maybe five-year deal 
And there you go. That's somebody. That's another thumper that could bat fifth or sixth in the lineup. Uh, and then you can start stringing together all these guys that hit 25-plus home runs for you. And now you got an offense to help uh, support a pitching staff, which who knows? It's up in the air right now on what the quality of the staff's going to be for the White Sox next year. But I say, I say, even though it's it's an underwhelming free agent market, if teams are not being aggressive, the White Sox, I think, have to be, and they should not be afraid. And I don't think Azuna or pitchers like Odorizzi are going to require nine-figure deals to get to, to get contracts signed. Yeah, right now I'm looking at the home run list, and 200 homers get you to 23rd place. And that's not going to cut it. <laughs> It's not going to cut it. No, with the offense the White Sox have. No. So they, they need someone like Azuna. So that's what I think. And uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I do have some news for you guys, though. I have booked hotels and flights. I will be at the winter meetings this year uh, doing some reporting from there. So if any news breaks out, I'll be there. Hopefully there will be some or it'll be just a, you know, an extended vacation in San Diego for me, which uh, is not a bad thing in the December getting out of Chicago. It's a good thing for your untapped list. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, Ed, thank you so much for your question. And terrific questions from everybody this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And again, you could always help support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our Patreon supporters not only get an ad-free version of the show, but they get the opportunity to ask questions to our guests and get an opportunity to ask additional P.O. Sox questions that they only listen to on their special uh, Patreon-only podcast feed of all of our episodes. Plus, uh, with extra writing, uh, there's going to be more posts that are Patreon-only. Uh, so if you enjoy our content and you want to help support us and you want more from us, go to patreon.com slash to sign up. And we're still looking forward to seeing everyone on July 21st uh, for our meetup. And for the life of me, Jim, I keep forgetting what the name of the brewery is in Downers Grove. Alter Brewing. Alter Brewing. So again, if you signed up, uh, terrific. We look forward to meeting you there. We're going to try to record a live P.O. Socks while we're there. Uh, so we have three tickets remaining. Three tickets. All right. So if you're listening to this and you want to go, again, this is Sunday, July 21st. It's a road watch party as the White Sox are playing in Tampa. So we know that the game is going to be played unless they have a power outage again in Tampa. Uh, we're going to try to record P.O. Sox li- uh, live there. Uh, so if you want to participate and actually be heard on the show, you can be able to do so. Drink some really good beer and just have a really good time. So if you are interested, we have three tickets remaining because space is limited. Go to SoxMachine.com to sign up for that event today. But thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you so much for participating with the first half grades. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes. Sorry, not iTunes. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.
When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.